For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have treasure, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power of God and not from ourselves. Hmm. Um, simply put, um, we can talk about moving our desires from adorning and paneling ourselves and all the accoutrements of this life to paneling and participating in adorning the kingdom of God, but fundamentally, the paneling and the adorning begins in our own hearts. And so I would encourage you now, listen to the word of God preached, exposed so that you and I may ponder it, and God will do the work of paneling our hearts and adorning our hearts so that we would be jars of clay, but yes, filled with his treasure. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to the book of Haggai. It's the third book to, uh, to last from the Old Testament, in the Old uh, Testament, so it's hard not to find if you know where Matthew is. As we do that, I'm going to adjust this guy. Sorry. Haggai chapter 1, 2 through 11 is the text that we're on. So we're gonna, I'm going to look at Haggai from the perspective of the, of the four different visions, uh, messages that God gave, oracles that God gave this prophet. And the first one is 2 through 11. Um, and so we're going to look at that oracle today. Next week we'll come back and look at 12 through 15. Um, and then, of course, um, the following week we'll go 2, 1 through 9. And then the last week will be 10 through the end of the uh, chapter. Even though there are two oracles, maybe that might be a point four A, B. I don't, I don't know yet. But those are the four oracles. And I share that with you so you can study along. So this coming week, dive into verses um, 12 and following of chapter 1. So when you come ne uh, next week, you're uh, familiar and much better able to fellowship with God as we, as we study his word uh, together. So this is the word of our, of our God. This is the word, I mean... Haggai makes it very clear, thus says the Lord of hosts. So as our Lord, our King, Lord of hosts is this majestic title of God's regency, the Lord of a host of armies um, associated with the temple, the Lord who is to be worshipped by his people, who's awesome. So let us stand as we read God's word out of reverence and respect for our King. Hear now the word of our Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to put into the purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the, the temple, that I may be pleased with it. And be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, and on the new wine, on the oil, and on what um, the ground uh, produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Let's follow the reading of God's word. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for the privilege of coming here now and gazing upon words, which we know from the New Testament statements were intended for us. Inspired by your spirit, Lord, they were written with us in mind as well. So we come here, O Lord, and we look with um, excitement and, uh, Lord, a great uh, desire, eagerness to study this passage together and to walk away by your grace uh, with, a, with a bigger view of you, a fuller view of you, uh, a, a biblical view of us, of man, of this world, that, Lord, we might live thereby. Give me grace to preach your word with fidelity. We commit this time now to you in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5b and 6, we read these words. You know them well. I'm putting them as a question. I've changed the first because I'm going in the middle of a verse. Have you uh, forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. This is one of many verses in the Bible that describes the reality of discipline. Now, when it comes to the child of God, we learn a lot from Scripture about discipline. For example, discipline of the child of God is always in love. Punishment, the last day when the wicked are punished, that's out of, out of anger. God never disciplines out of, out of anger. We, we would translate that as punishment. He always disciplines in love. Secondly, when you look at discipline the child of God, you notice that there's two types of discipline. There's individual discipline and there's corporate. Individual discipline has two forms. The first one is what we would call a corrective. It's the discipline that you're receiving right now. Anytime the word of God is preached, you are sitting under the discipline of the Lord. God is always correcting, always disciplining you in all things, throughout all things. He's always um, growing you, tempering you, maturing you and me into his, um, I'm sorry, unto his glory, into the image of Jesus Christ. The second type of individual uh, discipline is what we would call judicial. It's reactive. The first one is, is proactive. God's always molding and shaping us. But the second one is judicial, which is Matthew 18. And that's when we fall into sin, we're unrepentant. Unre- Matthew 18 describes the, the process of what should happen. And, it should, and, it, and if it keeps going, it could climax in excommunication. That is um, reactive, that is judicial discipline. That's the individual. But then in Scripture, we read about corporate discipline. Corporate. And that is a discipline that God meets out to his people who are the body, who are in covenant with God. Okay, for example, the Old Testament theocracy of Israel was a group of people, a nation in covenant with God. Now, when it comes to that relationship, unlike ours with God, which is unconditional, you can't lose his favor. God doesn't hold a grudge. We'll never hold a grudge. Corporately, God's people in the Old Testament, corporately, when when a group of people are in covenant with God, their relationship is conditional. And it is based upon what they do. And so, for example, listen to the uh, warning God gave to Israel, the corporate body of Christ, with the corporate um, a covenant that they enjoyed with God, Leviticus 26. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you, and every time I read you, it's a plural in the Hebrew. Okay, he's talking about the corporate people. Um, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my, my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I, in turn, will do this uh, to you corporately. I will appoint over you all a sudden terror, consumption and fever that shall waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you shall sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies uh, shall eat it up. It goes on and on and on like that in this uh, chapter. And it's talking to the group of people the covenant uh, people of God as a group. And if as a group, the nation did these things, 
God would ultimately send them into exile. It, it ends with, though, and those who, who, who hate you shall rule I'm over you, and you shall flee when no one is uh, pursuing you. Brothers and sisters, that's why the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom went into exile. Because every last one of them were these apostate people. No. There were genuine children of God in both nations who loved God. But because they were part of a group of people that was under God's judgment, corporately, they were sent into exile. So that's corporate discipline. Brothers and sisters, Haggai is addressing the people of God as a corporate entity. They're no longer a nation. However, they have a government, Zerubbabel. They were an identifiable group, even though they had Gentiles who could come in. Nevertheless, they were an identifiable group in covenant with God still. Not as a nation. They couldn't have a king. They couldn't have a president. They were a vassal people, a people group in Babylon or now in uh, uh, Persia. They still related uh, to God, uh, uh, therefore, as a corporate people to whom God sent prophets. Haggai, Malachi. Zechariah, who spoke to the people of God corporately. Y'all, okay, if we were in the South, we translated, y'all got to change, right? Or y'all need to do this. Um, And lastly, when they as a corporate body, therefore, rebelled in keeping with Leviticus 26, 14 through 17 and many other uh, passages, the land came under a curse. So Haggai is, is, this first prophecy is a rebuke. It's a rebuke to the corporate people of God. And thus I've labeled this, this section when the people of God corporately are compromised. To look at this, let's begin with the setting. Let's look behind the curtain. Notice with me verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. This is a dramatic statement in the Hebrew. You know, brothers and sisters, in the Hebrew, oftentimes the way something is said is as important and sometimes even more important than the words used. And that's the case here. Um, he's saying, the t- um, this people says, the time has not come. That redemptively is a buzzword in Scripture. It's used a lot. Okay? The time has, has come for... Example, it's used of a time in redemptive history when God acts, either redemptively or judicially. That's what that phrase says. The time has come, or the time has not come. For example, Galatians 4, at the fullness of the time, when the time had come, God sent forth his son, son uh, uh, born of a woman, born, right, um, That's Christ. When the New Testament era began, the time had come to send the Messiah. That's what Galatians 4 is saying. Let me give you some other uh, verses. Psalm 102, 13. The psalmist wrote, Thou wilt arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. This is strong... A language, it's the same. In fact, these verses I'm giving you use the exact expression in um, um, Haggai. Listen to Isaiah uh, 13, speaking of the downfall of Babylon. And hyenas will howl in their fortified towers and jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her faithful time also will soon come, and her days will not be uh, prolonged. The time is come to judge Babylon. That's this expression. It's an expression which is used in reference to God's redemptive program. Where he either comes and saves or he comes and destroys. Listen to Jeremiah 26, uh, 21. Speaking of the judgment that was going to come upon Egypt. Jeremiah wrote, Woe be upon them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. Last one, Ezekiel 7. Speaking of the destruction of Judah, the southern uh, kingdom. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitants of the Lamb. The time has come, the day is near. So when we read this phrase, when Haggai comes and says, this people says, the time has not come, as a Bible translator, as a student of Scripture, we're going to see this and go, whoa, 
This is covenantal language that Haggai, God, is employing here. This is more than just a flippant statement. This is intended to perk up the ears of God's people as they're hearing this. Now, did they understand um, over the course of 18 years, 538 down to 520, did they recognize when they were saying the time has not come, were they making a redemptive statement? Absolutely not. We'll talk about this more. Um, But with the way Haggai frames this, it's very clear Brothers and sisters, God's people were incredibly rebellious against the time that had come on the part of God's redemptive program. Well, what time was it then for God's people? Notice with me three through four. How were they living? Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves, literally in the Hebrew, is it time for you, you? It's duplicated. And you know, it, like for example, truly, truly, holy, holy, holy. That's not because there's, there's, there's three persons in God. That's an emphatic way that the, that the Jews, that Hebrew, emphasized and bolded, right? So it says, is the time for you yourselves, you, even you, okay, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? The dramatic statement, again. Loaded, but yet ludicrous. In essence, God's people, they know the time had come. They lived through it. For the southern kingdom to be brought into exile. They knew the time had come for them, Jeremiah 29, to build homes and live and and prosper in the land where they had had been brought. That was God's will. That was God's decree. When you go there, do this. And then they knew the time had come to build the temple. And they're acting as if, this is what, what Haggai is saying, they're acting as if from eternity past, God in his sovereignty ordained that God's people would go into exile, spend 70 years there, and then he would deliver them to bring them back to build their own homes. That was God's eternal plan. That you would go and spend time focusing on yourself. That's the contrast that Haggai's making here. It's incredibly strong. You are walking around saying, the time has not come, but the time has come for you redemptively to build your homes. It's really strong. It's quite the, the rebuke. Um, let me give you the background here. So you, you and I both know, I mentioned this last time, Jeremiah 25, 11, Jeremiah promised, prophesied that, that God's people would be in exile for 70 years. Now we're talking in Haggai about the spiritual Green Berets, the people who were sensitive to the Lord, the people who, when Cyrus let them go, um, went because they wanted to serve God. So they would have been aware of Jeremiah. They, like Daniel, would have been looking fervently it's the 70th week, a, a year, says Daniel. He knows in Daniel that it's something big's about uh, to happen, right? Um, so that's background. Secondly, 200 years, 220 years prior to this time, in Isaiah chapter 44, God made a prophecy, gave a prophecy through Isaiah that these people would have known. And that prophecy is that God would raise up a shepherd his servant, a pagan king who would charge God's people to build the temple. And they even, he even named him Cyrus. Listen to Isaiah 44, written 220 years prior to this event. Isaiah writes, It, 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 um, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. So these people, brothers and sisters, if you think about it, these people um, went, into, went back to the promised land when Cyrus gave this, his uh, permission. They went back not thinking it's a trap. You'd think they wouldn't have gone if never before, I referenced this, would a king allow people to live in their native land? 
The way you, you kept order in that ancient day was by transporting. That's where the Samaritans uh, came from. Transported upper class people from other nations, settled in Samaria after the, the uh, northern kingdom went into uh, exile, and they, and, and they intermarried and created this race known as the Samaritans. Okay? Brothers and sisters, you get this guy out of nowhere saying, I want you Jews, I'm commanding you Jews to go back to Palestine, here's all the temple stuff, and rebuild that temple. How do you know it's not a trap? No king does this. Do you trust this guy? I wouldn't. Unless you knew that Jeremiah prophesied way before God in 70 years would restore his people, and brothers, 538 was 70 years. And Isaiah 44 tells us that uh, the, the man's name, the ruler by name, 220 years prior to 520, his name would be Cyrus, or 538, uh, Cyrus, and he would give the command. He's God's shepherd, God's servant. So, so they would have uh, uh, concluded that while they went back by the permission of God, or the permission of Cyrus, excuse me, Nevertheless, the rebuilding of the temple, they went back by the command of the Lord of hosts, God Almighty, who holds the king in his hand, Proverbs 21.1. In other words, brothers and sisters, they went back to Palestine because they knew it was time to rebuild the temple. Do you understand? That's the background. Now, when they got there, what happened? Think of last week's... I'm introduction. They get there. They start clearing out the Temple Mount. It took six months to clear it off. And all the while, they're being attacked and um, 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 ridiculed and threatened. Their lives were threatened. And so what did they do? They did what normally do. What all of us do when difficult. When the world is rough to us, what do we do? We cocoon. We focus on ourselves. We withdraw from the world. We focus on ourselves. And we make the inside the way we want it to be, our homes, our lives, our food. So what do we do? We get to work busy um, planting our crops. Do the Samaritans have a problem with that? No. We get busy um, harvesting them and selling and trading and getting jobs. And we get busy raising our kids and we get busy planting fields and all of that. So God's people are out there doing all this. And anytime someone came and said, hey, guys, what do you say today we start on the temple? God's people would say, it's not time. It's harvest, guys. We can't build the temple now. we got to harvest the crops. Do you want the temple in death or do you want to eat? Do you want to eat this winter? Right? Well, now it's time, guys. It's time. Let's start working on that uh, temple. It's not time. It's time to plant. Or it's not time. My wife, Rachel, gave birth to my 19th child. And i got to... Build another addition on in my little tiny house. It's not time. It's, it's, the time is not right uh, personally. It's just not a good time for us. So that's what they were doing. Now, were they saying that redemptively? Absolutely not. They were just simply living. And when people would say, hey, what do you say we go work on that temple? Brothers, this is not a lot of time. I'm too busy doing this. I'm too busy doing that. I've got this to go and that to do, crops to, to harvest. I've got barns to do. I mean, I've got all these things we've got to get done. And so, brothers and sisters, that's what's behind the scenes. That's what's going on in terms of the setting. Okay, God's people just mindlessly just trying to survive in rebellion against the very reason they went to Palestine. But brothers and sisters, what's the hurry? We're not in rebellion. We're going to get to the temple but after the harvest, maybe, and after, who knows when, but, but not now. Now is the time to harvest or to plant or to marry or to do all these different things. And that then leads Haggai to a, a sober call. Okay, notice with me verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, this is a, another significant um, prophetic um, 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 exhortation to God's people. When you first read that phrase, consider your ways, you and I are going to think Haggai's telling them to look within. Look what's on your heart. What's your motives? Why are you doing what you're doing? And that is not what he's saying here at all. In the end, that may 
that may come about because of what this word, what this command is. But the command is not saying, look within. What it's saying is, step back from your lives. Wake up. Open your eyes. Step out of your, of your, of your little life and look at the big picture. Look at why God's people went into exile. Look at, at, at what they did there and then look at all of the providential dealings of God that brought you to where you are now and then look at the experience that you yourselves are living through right now. Step back and look at the big picture. I got a quote there, Peter Verhoff. Verhoff wrote these words. In the context of these verbs, consider your ways, concerned the apprehension of the real meaning of the historical and eschatological events. The same applies to the expressions to set your hearts upon. The people must consider, must give careful thought to their circumstances and experiences in order that they may deduce from them the correct conclusions. They must consider their situation and fate from the point of view of what God had wanted from them and had intended for them. You see, that's the idea. It's this, it's a covenantal word of sobriety. Lift your eyes up, get out of your, of your, of your little world, and step back and see the big picture, what God's doing. And to do that, he then describes verse 6. He gives this uh, description. You have so much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You can imagine these people listening to this, stepping back and going, yeah, amen. I've been toiling and toiling. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Boyce wrote of this, I wish I hadn't put the first sentence, so jury, ignore the first sentence. This is not about us. Notice his quote. Haggai's first remark in verse 6 is that the people had planted much, but had harvested little. Since farming was their chief occupation, it is the equivalent of saying that they're always working. They were like the people in our day who take on extra jobs, who work through lunch and stay in the, the plant to work nights, who are always rushing around to get ahead, yet little had come of it. Look at your lives. And then I'll be going, you're right. We have been doggedly working for 18 years. And what do we have to show for it? Every year we're short on food. Every year the crops don't come in like we'd hope. Every year when it comes to harvest, it rains, messes up our, our, our harvest. It's just, it's just been a, a difficult 18 years. And then on top of it, we're in a drought. You remember that? God's people are in a drought. Look at what it says here. And it's just nothing's working for them. Nothing. So they're struggling. But yet, brothers and sisters, because they were stepping out of themselves... And not looking within at the toil and the hardship, but they're stepping out and looking at God's redemptive picture. What would come to mind to these spiritually sensitive men and women of the book? Men and women of God. Men and women of God's word. What would come to mind? Well, brothers and sisters, verse 6 is right out of the pages of Deuteronomy. Let me read to you two verses. Deuteronomy 8, 28, 2 through 6. When God organized his people into a nation, a theocracy. These were the promises and the warnings. We call these covenant blessings and covenant curses. Given to the corporate entity, not the individual. The corporate entity which would impact the individual. But given to them if they proved faithful. Verse 2. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you will obey the Lord your God as a nation. Blessed shall you be in the city. and Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall, shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your, of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall, be, uh, um, shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. It goes on and on. And then in verse 15, he changes it. He goes, but it shall come about 
If you will not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you uh, today as a nation, that all these curses shall come upon you, you and and overtake you. Cursed shall be you in this city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Now, as I read this, you've got your Bibles open to Hosea. Look at verse 6. Okay. Cursed shall be um, your basket and your nebel. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in and cursed shall be you when you go out. The text goes on and on and on for a lot of more verses. If you step back from the setting right now and look at verse 6 in light of redemptive history, the undeniable conclusion is that as a people in covenant with God, we are under his judgment. The land is in drought because of us. Our money stacks don't hold money because of us. We thought it was the Samaritans. We thought it was a fluke of of nature. We thought it was all these different things that we're pointing our fingers at. And that's what God's people did for 18 years. Struggling just to get by by the sweat of their brow. Going, man, I wish those Samaritans hadn't done that. And I wish there wasn't this drought. And I wish this was going better. And I wish my field hadn't gotten burnt. Ah! Little did they know that they were the ones to blame. So when he says, consider your ways, why was the land suffering so? That's Deuteronomy. Why does a land suffer, brothers and sisters? Uncharacteristically, why? It's because the uh, the unfaithfulness of the people of God dwelling within it. Do you understand that? This is a huge um, redemptive covenant principle in Scripture. And it's huge for you and I because today the only people group in covenant with God is the church. Family of God, the blessings and curses of the, of the covenant are applicable to any group in covenant with God. And that group today is the church. Look at the United States. I hear the gripes. I proclaim the gripes. I feel the grumble. I am the grumble. But have any one of us, has has any church in the United States, and I'm focusing on the U.S. for those who might be listening or watching in another part of the world, you do it there. Look at your country. If you are not satisfied with what you see, Wars, rumors of war, disease, famine, sickness, fires, conflict. That lays at the feet of the covenant people of God. It always amazes me when a tragedy comes. Katrina, World Trade Center. The church is quick to stand up and say, it's because this land's turned their back upon God. And brothers and sisters, oftentimes... That land in which we live has turned its back upon God. But let me tell you something. This land is not in covenant with God. It never has been. You may call it a Christian nation. And if by that you mean it was founded on a Christian moral principles, fine. But you're misspeaking when you call it a Christian nation. Because a Christian nation is a nation in covenant with God. And the only nation that was a Christian nation was Israel. And it rebelled and God wiped it off the face of the earth. The only people group in covenant with God today where Deuteronomy 26 or 28 and Leviticus 26 could apply is the church. And yet when bad things happen, who today is considering our ways? Is the church going to wake up and consider its ways in America? We talk now whether or not you think there's a real pandemic. I mean, of course, there's a pandemic on. But whether or not you think it's as serious as they're saying Or maybe you're of the kind saying, man, this is nothing. Right? But what is something is what the government's doing in response to taking power and controlling signs of the times. Have you considered your ways and saw, man, this land is broken. It's broken not because of Adam and Eve uh, merely. It's broken in a way that proclaims that, that it seems as though this land is not blessed. 
This land is under a curse. That lies at the feet of the church. You got to see that, brothers and sisters. That lies at our feet. The Jonah principle. And if our country are amazing, we're in this horrible time where division and, and, and hatred and, and now a, this disease and on and on is just big. And you know what our government's doing? It's shutting down the church when they don't understand reality. And that is the reason could very well be because of the church. Rather than shutting it down and causing more uh, damnation, condemnation on this land, curses, how about they come to the church and say, guys, humble yourselves before God and pray and seek your God and find out what have you done to offend your God? Jonah principle. Jonah's in, at least those Gentiles had the eyes to see. Jonah's in the cargo hold of that ship and the ship is being tossed to and fro. They're throwing out their uh, cargo. They're, they're, they're under a curse. And they're praying to their false gods. Help me, help me, help me. And nothing's happening. And Jonah's in the basement doing exactly what the church is doing today in America. Sitting there asleep. So they come down and they rouse him from his sleep and say, Jonah, um, would you please pray to your God and see if maybe you have offended him? And Jonah said, I don't have to pray. I've offended him. And this, this is because of me family of God, when will the church wake up and be able to see that and examine itself? Now, if you were to ask yourself, how would you examine? What do you examine? Does that mean we examine the, the, uh, the success of our ministries? Let's see, we got an outreach ministry. Whoa, this is really successful. God must be pleased. No. We go to scripture and we ask in the word of God, does God have, have important elements to which he holds the the corporate body of Christ too. And we go, well, let's see, look at the book of Revelation and the seven churches. And each one of those churches will reveal to you the heartbeat of God and the will of God for, for his local churches. As those seven churches were real churches, but yet types of the kinds of churches that exist in the world today. Well, brothers and sisters, from five of them, I, don't, well, I won't look at the faithful church and I won't look at the uh, uh, persecuted church, but the other five. What God holds big it's a lack of love. Ephesus. A compromised pulpit. Pergamum. Unrepentant sins. Sardis. Compromised worship. Baalist worship. Thyatira. And apostasy. Who cares what God's word says? Laodicea. Brothers, we could, we could answer this. We could, when, when, when God's word says, consider your ways, it's calling the church to say, how is the pulpit? Are we being faithful to the word? Or has the pulpit become a counseling session? How's our worship? Is our worship God-focused, driven by God, according to God's word? Or has it become uh, a show, a game, something that we give as a product to, the, to the, um, a customer who comes to get them to stay? How's our purity? Now, we can do this corporately. Other people living in unrepentant sin in the, the church, and the church just says, we're going to love them back. We're not going to do Matthew 18. We're just going to love them back. That's what the typical church does today because we don't want to be arrogant. Brothers, you're being arrogant if you don't follow God's word because you're saying we know better than, than God. How about our apostasy? Are our families drifting away from God? Do they not care about God anymore? Do they not care about his glory? If the church doesn't open its eyes, that's the whole point of Haggai, open your eyes. Now the focus that he has here is on worship. Notice with me verses 8 through 9. He says, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple. Now we're, we're going to skip to 9. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord, because my house which lies desolate, which each of you runs to his, to his own house. Brothers and sisters, this is a big deal. Worship is a big deal in Scripture. How we worship, 
the ability to worship is a priority of God. Now, I don't have time. I got a whole page of stuff I was going to bring you through, but suffice it to say, let me, you've got, well, you've got some verses there. No, number one, the reason God saved us was for his worship. Isaiah 43, 6-7, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who was called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. The focus of the passion of God when it comes to the people of this world is his worship. John 4, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. Shall worship in spirit and truth for such the Father seeks. That's what God wants in this world is true worshipers. His goal is not to simply save people from hell. His goal is to mature, disciple, and raise up a people of genuine worshipers of God involves discipleship and teaching. The essential definition of a Christian is a worshiper, Philippians 3.3. We are the true circumcision who worship. As such, in and through all things, our call is is, is the worship, honor, and glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, I've got a whole lot more here. The notes will be online if if you're interested, demonstrating that the... uh, uh, the matter of worship is of utmost importance to God. He looks at Haggai and says, you're not worshiping. Oh yeah, from Ruth or from, from um, Ezra, we know that they were still going and performing the sacrifices, but they weren't worshiping the way God wanted them to, uh, to worship. He told them, build the, the uh, temple. They're not doing it. Worship was of a secondary importance to them. What was more important was their home. For all this, brothers and sisters, you must see, in a world today in the U.S. where we worship our work as a church, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. I can't help but to wonder, as you consider our ways, look at the broad evangelical church and ask yourself, are they offering biblically driven worship to God? Biblically prescribed, are we? Over a century ago, 120 years now, Spurgeon wrote these words, and evil is in the professed camp of the Lord. So gross in its impudence and the most short-sighted Christian can hardly fail to notice it. During the past few years, this, this evil has developed into an, in an alarming rate. It has worked like leaven until the whole lump uh, ferments. The devil has seldom done a more clever thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide um, um, entertainment uh, for the people with a view towards winning them. At the same time, Archibald Brown, a contemporary of Spurgeon, added these words, Jesus pitied sinners, pleaded with them, sighed over them, warned them, and wept over them, but he never sought to amuse them. When many of his disciples turned away because of the searching nature of his preaching, I do not find there was any attempt to bring them back by resorting to something more pleasant in the flesh. I do not hear him saying, we must keep up the gatherings at any cost. So run after the people, Peter, and tell them that we, have, we will have a different style of service tomorrow. We'll change our worship to get them in. Archibald saying, you don't read that in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, the biblical worship in Haggai was for the people of God to adore God. Who are the participants of worship? Who are they? You. Worship does not occur here. It occurs there. And Haggai's saying, guys, you've missed it. You're not participating the way you ought because you're more focused on you than on God. What should be our focus when it comes to God's worship? Notice the verse I just skipped, 8b. That I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the bottom line when it comes to a worship service is, is God pleased and is he glorified? Not, am I pleased? Am I inspired? Am I happy? Today, in the broad evangelical church, worship is defined by how it makes you feel. Ask church leaders, give me a definition of biblical worship, and they'll say biblical worship, and they have, and they weave into there some statement about how it makes you feel. Biblical worship inspires a person to praise and glorify God. That is not biblical worship. Biblical worship, as you know, worship means worth It means ascribing to God his worth. 
God is the one of the object of, of worship, always. And because of that, he determines how he should be worshipped, right? And that's why he says that I, the focus, the bottom line is, is God, please, get this. I don't care if you like that song. I don't. None of the elders do. The question that is governing us, does God like that song? Does God like that? Does God prescribe that? And if people come here and leave here saying, man, that was boring. Well, I'm sorry. But does God think it's boring? If he thinks it's not boring, that's the bottom line. Because the bottom line in, ver- in worship is 8B. And that I may be pleased and may be glorified. The word for glory means to ascribe weight or worth to. That God in the service of worship, God's people might come here and ascribe the glory and the weight and the worth of God in song. In how they give. And in their prayers. And how they sit in beneath his word. Right? Submitting to it. Lord, let me submit to this. Give me the grace as I'm preaching. As God's word's being preached, we are praying, God, give me the grace to apply this. Give me the grace to, you're grappling. Okay? The sermon should be the most vigorous, the most difficult, and the, most, and the loudest part of any worship service. As parents talk to the kids, as kids ask questions under a whisper, as we sit there and pray and you're, oh God, what I just heard, wow, give us grace. Are you submitting to the glory of God? Are you glorifying God as, he, as the words preach, as the table served? Brothers and sisters, notice the consequence. And Haggai ends this sermon, this first oracle with this. It, it's a downer, but it's not. Therefore, because of you, if you, if you had any questions, Haggai's not going to let you, he's not going to leave you, you hanging. This, it's because of you the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands, in accordance with Deuteronomy chapter 26. Because of you. Will the church wake up and consider her ways? How do you do that? I want to close with just a quickie. How do you do that? One, Proverbs 4, watch over your heart with all diligence. Take Revelation 2 through 3 and, and, and recognize that insofar as they represent the types of churches that will exist during the interventional period between the first and second coming of Christ, they are also types of Christians. There's the Christian who's lost his first love. And this, and this isn't binary. This isn't either you've lost or you haven't. You know, brothers and sisters, I'm guilty of four or five of those churches. How zealous am I for my God anymore? How much have I stopped heeding the word of God? How hard do I labor to submit myself to grace? To stop griping at God and praising him when difficulties come? How long, brothers and sisters, am I going to continue to be wowed by the world's entertainments or the world's fashions or the world's name it? Okay, I'm thinking of, of, the, of the worldly church. All those different churches are different Christians. So first, let's begin with ourselves. Do my children, are they growing in their understanding of God's word? If they're not, and your home is, I always call it in parenting, your home is a church. I don't mean literally. It's a covenant group. Uh, my question is this. So many parents come and criticize a church. How many of the criticisms that they level are applicable to their own homes? Is there a youth pastor in your home? Is the word of God preached or is it just, or is it just fluff? Are you, are you teaching your kids the word of God? Is life about fun? Is the Bible about fun or is it about serving God, which becomes fun? Right, brothers and sisters, it begins here. Secondly, let's, let's look at Bethel. How's the pulpit? How's the worship? Is it biblically driven? How is our people? Are we growing in grace? Are our children growing in grace? Are we coming to a fuller understanding and love for God? Are we worldly? Or have we just altogether given up? And then lastly, let's look at the bigger church. And if you see deficiencies, do not judge. Pray. And that's, that's, I'll tell you what, the thing that I'm convicted most of here 
You know what? In past generations, when a horrible thing occurred, do you know what the church did? They had worship services where they confessed their sins. Go back to the 50s, 40s, 30s, 20s. When bad things happened, the congregation, body, the body of Christ gathered together because of this concept in Haggai, and they prayed. You know what's amazing? Second Chronicles, I'll close with these words, 7, uh, uh, 13. You know it. It's what God told Solomon at the dedication of the temple. He said, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from the ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. Brothers and sisters, Haggai chapter, the, the first oracle, is a call for you and I to consider. May God give us the grace to engage today in our conversations, this week in our, on our knees, in a, in a, in a serious intense considering of what is going on in this world. And may it lead us to prayer, repentance, praise, and a renewed vigor for our God. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at this passage, it's amazing to see this message. And Lord, it could certainly come across as being, as being heavy, and it certainly is. And Lord, it can certainly come across as being a... Um, a downer and maybe it was for a bit but we look at the next section a couple weeks later we see what your spirit did with this passage amongst your people 2500 years ago god we pray for the same response on the part of your people today not just bethel but your church in the u.s lord Wake up the church, we pray. Wake them up, O Lord, to evaluate their ministry, not against their success or their own agenda, but against your word. Wake us up to evaluate our lives corporately, not against our own agenda, but against your word. And Lord, may we not, um, as a people, um, rebel and struggle with mandates of of a, of a lost, fallen people who do not know the right hand from their left. But may we take responsibility and confess our sins and turn from our sins unto you and beseech your name. And pray, O oh God, give us the grace, O oh Lord, to, to respond the way your people did with vigor and zealousy and a love for, for you. Lord, we know there's no condemnation individually. None of this sticks on us in the sense of condemnation, the sense of judgment, for we were judged in Christ, not guilty. So, Lord, individually, we, we, we do not come before you with any sense of heaviness. But corporately, O oh Lord, I pray we would, that we would pray and beseech and fast and repent and call the body of Christ corporately in America and the world to turn from their wicked ways that God might indeed, first and foremost, heal us and then heal the land. Father, we love you. We thank you that we can look at a passage like this and take it personally and take it as coming from the hand of you, our Lord, as a commission. Give us the grace of the Lord to respond accordingly, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.